This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Now, on the 8th of May, last year, 2017, uh, there was this lady called Sylvia Hajas who was taking uh, her daughter, Trinity, for a walk at the beach at the East Coast Park. And when she looked out at the sea, she saw four boys in the water. And she heard them crying out, help, help, help. So she left her daughter at the beach and she swam uh, 50 meters out into uh, the ocean and uh, she rescued one of them and she pulled them back. When she got back to the shore, there were still three others there. She was feeling a bit tired already, but she jumped back into the water and she swam out again another 50 meters and then she rescued one more boy. But this time it was harder because the boy was struggling and she really had to fight to bring him back to the shore. And when she got back to the shore, she said that she felt that her heart was pounding, her muscles were aching, and the fatigue was setting in. But still, she went into water one more time. She swam another 50 meters, and she rescued the boy, and then brought him back again. But by this time, when she looked out, uh, the other boy had disappeared. And the last boy, uh, this guy called Mohammed Suhaimi Sebastian, was only 12 years old. And uh, they found his body three hours later. Now this was really big news in the newspaper. And why was it big news in the newspaper? Because it's very rare for someone to risk their life to save strangers. And more than that, this was a woman who was in her 40s. She had a young child. And uh, you know the child was still at the beach. And she could have easily died saving these three boys. But not once. Not even twice, but three times she went out to the ocean to save these boys. Now, when I read this uh, story in the newspaper, I was really very touched by what she did, right? And I kind of imagine, you know, imagine if I was touched by it and I'm just a complete stranger. Imagine if I was the parent of one of the boys who was saved. Like, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and there is the boy eating breakfast with me. And I'll be thinking to myself, if it wasn't for this woman... Right, I would not be having uh, breakfast with my child now. And I think that as we remember Silver Hajas for what she did that day to save those three children, then today as we look at Matthew chapter 27, we see a much greater salvation. Because here she was saving three children, but as we come to Matthew chapter 27, what we are actually reading is the salvation of the whole of humanity. And as she was saving these children from the sting of uh, drowning, the sting of death through drowning, uh, what Jesus, we read today, is actually doing is saving the whole of humanity from the sting of death itself and eternal judgment. Now we know this because last week uh, and the weeks before, Jesus explained what the cross and what the crucifixion really means. And what it really meant was three things, right, as explained by Jesus. The first thing was, was that he was the suffering servant. That he was the suffering servant. Uh, The next slide, the suffering servant, right? Because as the suffering servant, he would suffer in order to serve people and to save them from death and their sins. Jesus also said that the crucifixion was the fulfillment of him being 
the Passover lamb. Right, the Passover lamb where when you believe in Jesus, then death and judgment passes over you because Jesus has died for you on the cross. But lastly, Jesus also said that when he goes to the cross, it is to bring fulfillment of forgiveness because his blood has been shed so that total forgiveness could be received. So as we read chapter 27, we have to keep all these things in mind because these are not just descriptions of a man going to be crucified. These are the descriptions of the fulfillment of Jesus being the suffering servant, the Passover lamb, and the one who brings forgiveness. So chapter 27, if you follow me in your Bibles, don't worry, we're not going to go through all 65 verses, verse by verse. Actually, 66 verses, but not verse by verse. But we're going to go through it in big chunks, right? So look at the first section of me in chapter 27. So it says that early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Now, the first thing we are told here, and the message that we are meant to receive, is that Jesus was innocent blood. Right, so Judas recognizes, belatedly, what he has done, that Jesus is innocent to be condemned to go to be crucified. Right, so he goes to the chief priest, he knows that Jesus is going to be crucified, and he says, Jesus is innocent. But the shocking answer of the religious leaders is, not that, no, he is guilty. They say, it is your responsibility. Now, that's really shocking because as the religious leaders, it is their job to protect the innocent and persecute the, the guilty. But they recognize that Jesus is innocent. But they say, it is Judas. You are the one who is responsible. But the reality is, actually, it's the religious leaders who are responsible. Because they are the ones currently right this very moment bringing Jesus to Pilate in order to have him crucified. But more than that, as we look at this passage, what it's trying to say to us is how the religious leaders are so particular about ceremonial law, but yet they are so flippant about the weightier matters of the law. So when Judas throws the 30 silver pieces to um, the religious leaders, they say, no, we cannot accept this money because it is blood money. So we cannot put it into the temple treasury. So they're more interested in how to treat the blood money than undo the problem of the blood of the murder of Jesus itself. Right? When it comes to murder, that's okay. When it comes to the killing of an innocent person, that's okay. But when it comes to the treatment of the blood money, well, we have to be very careful about that. We've got to dot the I's and cross the T's. Now, 
what this passage says here is actually that what the religious leaders have done is to show how little they actually view Jesus' life. Because they used the 30 silver pieces to buy a field for burial. And in verse 9 it says, This was what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet being fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, in the previous weeks, we knew that uh, Judas was going to betray Jesus for 30 silver pieces. And we said that actually, 30 silver, silver pieces, what can it buy? Right? What is 30 silver pieces worth? Uh, and we realized that 30 silver uh, pieces of uh, silver was worth a bull, right? a cow. So someone rightly asked in the Bible study, then how is it now that uh, they are able to buy this field? Right? Because you know, maybe the field surely is worth more than a cow, right? I mean, obviously, like your car cannot be as expensive as your HDB flat, right? So, why they are able to use these 30 silver pieces to buy the, 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 the field is because it is a potter's field. And what it means is actually it's a field where the potters, you know, they make all the plates and the bowls and everything, they throw all their broken pieces of pottery. So, it's a worthless field. You can't grow things there, you can't feed your sheep there, they can't roam around. This is like a garbage field. And that's why they use the 30 silver pieces to buy this field, because the only good that this field is worth is to, as a burial field to bury people. And I think that that is what the point of this section is about, isn't it? What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus God Jesus divine, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Savior worth in the eyes of the people that he's come to save. He's worth a burial field, a potter's field, a field where people throw their pottery. Now last week uh, in the 4pm service, uh, Andrew Wong gave this excellent illustration, so I thought I'll just steal it. He's saying that, you know, in a world where there is no God, what is the value of somebody? What is the worth of somebody? You know, if there's no God, then your, your value is your production, right? You know, what, what can you actually produce in this world? And uh, when you can't produce anything, what are you really worth? And he was giving this illustration about how, you know, uh, in Nazi Germany, when they were killing all the Jews during the Holocaust, there was this rumor that went around that, that they were making bars of soap from the people they killed. Right? So the value of a human person is a bar of soap, right? Well, in this case, that shocking picture comes even more shocking because Jesus, God himself, the saviour of the world, Jesus Christ, he's not worth a bar of soap, but he's worth something just slightly more. A burial field, a field full of broken pots and shreds of clay. Now, that's the ultimate rejection of Jesus, right? Because like we read about Sylvia Hajas, she saved three boys and she was given commendation, positive media coverage. But on the day that Jesus went to die, he was not given any positive commendation. He was rejected by all the chief priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin. And they put him to death and they estimated him to be worth a burial field.
Now, Judas is dead. And uh, Jesus is brought before the governor. So in verse 11, he stands before Pilate, the governor appointed by the Romans. The governor asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, there was a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus, Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Now, the reason why uh, the charge against Jesus before Pilate was, are you the Christ, are you the king, was different from the original charge before the Sanhedrin, which was blasphemy. right? Because if the Jews went to uh, Pilate and said, oh, you know, we find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, then Pilate, being the Roman secular governor, would say, well, what's what's it got to do with me? I mean, I'm I'm not interested in your religious disputes. But what the Jews did, the Jewish religious leaders did, was they twisted the charge to say that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the King, the King of the Jews. Because that would mean treason. Because there was only one King, one emperor over the Jews, and that was Julius Caesar, right? the emperor back in Rome. But yet, as we look at this passage, we, we see that, um, again, just like Judas, Pilate and his wife both recognized that Jesus was innocent. Judas, sorry, not Judas, uh, Pilate recognizes it through his cross-examination of Jesus. Pilate's wife recognizes it because she has a supernatural dream. But more than that, Pilate recognizes that it was because of self-interest. Right? Or the, the, isn't that the, the one about envy? But actually it's because of envy that uh, the, the, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Now, That's really shocking, right? Because here was the saviour of the world, saviour of the world, who has come to save his people, but his own people reject him because of their own self-interest or their envy. They are threatened by Jesus because Jesus is greater than them. They are threatened by Jesus because Jesus understands God's word a million times better than they ever will. They are threatened by Jesus because Jesus is able to do miracles which they cannot do. And because of that, can you imagine they want to crucify Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior? Now many years ago, I read this book called uh, Twisted right, by Jeffrey Archer, uh, not Jeffrey Archer, Jeffrey Deaver. Right? And uh, it's actually a very interesting book. It's just full of short stories. And uh, all the short stories have uh, a twist in it. 
And the reason why it's called twisted is because actually a lot of the short stories have endings which are totally unexpected because there are no happy endings, right? And the reason why this guy, Jeffrey Deaver, he wrote in his introduction, why he wrote these short stories was because he felt that he couldn't make them into long stories because if you bought the novel and you got to the end and you read the ending, you, you, you curse him and, and hate him and say, you know, I just invested like days of my time, you know, like 300 pages to come to this ending and I'll never read this guy again, right? You've wasted my time. So there is one story that I remember in this book called Twisted. It's about this uh, guy who's very envious of his best friend because, you know, this guy is like a loser and his best friend is like the ultimate winner, right? He's got the trophy family. All his kids are successful. He, everything he does turns to gold. He's uh, liked by everybody. So one day, somehow, he gets some powers and he curses his friend. And everything goes wrong with his friend. And then, you know, and then the short story goes on and on about all the bad things that happen. You know, they get terminal disease, disaster strikes. But, and at the end of the story, his friend dies. And that's the end of the story. Right? And he's like, oh, that's it. Right? And that's why the story is called Twisted. Right? But that's exactly what happens to Jesus. Right? You imagine the Son of God, God Himself, Savior of the world, Christ, the King, comes into the world and His own people spit on Him, slap Him, frame him, betray him, and bring him to the cross where he dies. That's twisted, right? I mean, that's twisted in reality, not twisted in fiction. That is a real twisted reality. But that's what's happening to Jesus here, isn't it? It is because of envy and self-interest that actually they reject him. Not because he's guilty, he's innocent. Now, Pilate recognizing that Jesus is innocent and the religious leaders are here mainly because they are self-interested and envious, tries to set Jesus free. The first thing he tries to do is he tries to get Jesus to speak up. Speak up, right? Jesus, speak up and defend yourself. But Jesus remains silent before every charge. The next thing he does is he tries to then get Jesus released Right, so he's, he, he goes to the crowd, right? He says, okay, we won't re- worry about the religious leaders. Let's go to the crowd and listen. Maybe the crowd will recognize that Jesus is innocent. So he compares Jesus, the innocent Christ, to this notorious criminal who everybody knows is guilty. And he expects the crowd to free the, re- the, the innocent Jesus and condemn the guilty Jesus Barabbas, right? But instead, the chief priests and the elders, they persuade the crowd to condemn the innocent Jesus Christ. But Pilate gives up, right? And in verse 24, seeing that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. But actually, the reality is that Pilate cannot so easily wash the responsibility of Jesus' blood from his hands. He was appointed Roman governor. And as the Roman governor, he has the power and he has the duty to let the innocent go and to prosecute the guilty. He is just as guilty as Judas for betraying Jesus. He is just as guilty as 
the religious leaders for wanting Jesus dead because it is his power and his power alone which allows Jesus to be crucified. If, if, Judah, if Pilate that day said, no, I'm going to set Jesus free, yes, there would be a riot, but he would be doing the right thing and Pilate would be then innocent of Jesus' blood. But more than that, look at what it says there in verse 22 and 23 and verse 25. All right, so can you see it? The next slide. All right. Oh, so you can click also. So it says there in verse 22 to 23, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime is he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. And in verse 25, all the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Now you notice here that by the end of this section, all people are calling for Jesus to be crucified. There is no one who is innocent of the blood of Jesus. Judas is guilty, the religious leaders are guilty, the Romans are guilty, and even more, the crowd are all guilty. All cry out for Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And they cried all the louder. And all of them shout, we will bear his blood. And not just on us, but on our children. Now I think that when we see that Jesus is the suffering servant, right? he was despised, he was rejected by all. This is what it meant, isn't it? All people will despise and reject Jesus. Right, the next slide, right, where everyone would actually be against Jesus at the very end. Now, I wonder how it would be like for us to stand with Jesus that day. How would it feel like? Can you imagine you come to save these people and they're all shouting louder and louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Well, that's what Jesus suffered. On our behalf, isn't it? So I remember uh, reading on the internet about how one of the worst things that people experience uh, these days is where you, you get hate mail or people hate you uh, via the internet. Right? So you know your Facebook page or your Twitter or your Instagram and then no, everybody starts hating on you. And it's so bad that, you know, if uh, a lot of people hate you, people actually commit suicide because they feel very hated, right? But imagine if it's not just one or two or three or tens or thousands of people, but a million people hated you. How would you feel as a person, right? Well, I think that that was the suffering that Jesus experienced at that moment, isn't it? It's like he's come to save the people. He's come, he is God, he is Savior, he is Christ, and all... Right, you notice the word that keeps being repeated here, all. Right? All the chief priests and the elders voted to, to kill him. All the crowd shouted all the louder, crucify, crucify, crucify. And even Pilate, the secular governor, right, he, was, he, was not guilt, he was not innocent of the death of Jesus. All people wanted Jesus to be dead. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I tend to only like to help people who care about me helping them. I mean, I think that's a very human thing. Right? I remember once, uh, 
I, 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 I tried to help this old lady who had all these bags, right? I come at the bus stop. Then I think maybe because you know I look, I look quite suspicious. She thought I was trying to rob her of her, of her grocery shopping, right? So she, she, she was like quite unhappy with me and rude with me. So I said, okay, nah, you go off yourself, like, you know, I'm going to help you if you don't want me to help you and you don't appreciate what I'm trying to help you. But I was still thinking, you know, imagine Jesus, right? He's, he's here to save the world from death and eternal punishment. And everybody is shouting at him, crucify him, crucify him. But yet Jesus is willing to suffer as a suffering servant for them. That's amazing. The passage then goes on and turns now to Jesus' physical suffering. So in verse 26, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his hand, in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. And they took a staff and struck him on the head again and again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. While they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now here we see that uh, there's a huge level of physical abuse and emotional turmoil for Jesus. So Pilate, for all his uh, protestations of innocent, uh, puts Jesus uh, through great torture. So it says there in verse 26 that Jesus was handed over to be flogged. Now, we think of flogging, we think maybe uh, like in, in Singapore prison, you get hit by the rattan, right? The Romans were not, uh, not humane that way. They actually had these whips right, of leather, and in the leather, they would uh, tie these knots of, uh, of, of uh, bone or steel, right? so that when you got flogged, you can imagine that the, 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 the bone or the steel would actually break and cut your skin so much so that you know you could see your muscles, your intestines, your bones, right? And some people actually died already even before they got to the cross because they were flogged this way. But after Jesus was weak and uh, damaged in this way, even then 
he was tortured right, and humiliated. So, you know, he was brought before the soldiers, you know, so he was in the middle of the Roman camp. And they made fun of him, right? They mocked him. Obviously, they had no sympathy because they were Jew. He was a Jew, and they were Roman soldiers. So they, 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 they mocked him. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head, right? And I don't think that uh, they just sort of set it lightly on his head. They probably crushed it on his head, right? And then they used a staff and they, they hit him on his on his head over and over, and they made fun of him. Now, as this is happening, you you sort of wonder, you know, how can God allow His Son? to be treated this way. Right? What, is the, what is the attitude of God that he allows his own son to suffer in this way? Uh, there was a recent article in the newspaper where uh, there was a father who saw the teacher pushing his boy in primary one class, right? apparently the first day or something, the first day of school or something, and he's pushing his son to line up. Then the father got very angry and punched the teacher. No? Now, can you imagine God in heaven seeing his son being uh, uh, you know, abused and flogged and humiliated, but yet God chooses to do nothing? Because this is God's grace and God's love and God's generosity towards us. Right? He allows his very own son to be humiliated and to be tortured in this way so that we may be able to be saved. But what is even worse is how they continue to mock Jesus even as he's physically suffering. So as he's hanging up there on the cross, which is already extremely painful, right? Imagine nails through your wrists and nails through your ankles. They give Jesus, or at least pretend to give Jesus, a drink of wine, right? But actually the wine is mixed with gall, and gall is bitter, right? So Jesus, after he sips it, recognizes that you can't drink this, it's too bitter, right? It's like, imagine you're dying of thirst, and I give you a glass, which looks like water, but it's actually petrol, right? It's that sort of mocking and humiliation, right? He's hanging up there, and he's naked because his clothes are divided among the soldiers. And we see here that he's being mocked from every side. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers are mocking him, right? There's this charge over Jesus. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, the people who are walking past the crucifixion point, right? So the crucifixion is a very public place. It's not like in Singapore where, you know, you, you get hanged in Changi prison and that's it, nobody sees you. The Romans put you like in the major public place in the top of the hill where everybody can see you. Like, you know, people are walking past, past you like an orchard road, okay? And he's there naked hanging on the cross and people are mocking him as he's, they're walking past. Save yourself if you're the son of God. And the chief priests and the teachers and the elders were there too. They were mocking him, saying, He saved himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And even the two robbers beside Jesus were insulting and mocking him. Now, the irony is actually, in a lot of what the, the mockers said, there was deep, profound truth. So, the, the Sanhedrin, the chief religious leaders, they said to Jesus, He saved others, they said, but He can't save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now if He wants Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Now, the reality is, actually, because Jesus saves others, 
therefore he will not save himself. Because in order to save others, he has to be the suffering servant. He has to be the Passover lamb. By saving himself, he cannot save others. So actually, he needs to stay on the cross in order to save others. He trusts in God. He is the Son of God. And therefore, because he is the Son of God, he is obedient. And he will not let God rescue him. Because it is not God's will to rescue him. And the irony is actually all through Jesus' ministry, over and over again, Jesus has always been asked to come down from the cross. right? To take the path of less resistance. So Matthew chapter 24, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, sorry, the devil actually tempted Jesus and said, look, you can be king without going through the cross, just bow down before me. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, Peter, the chief disciple, said, you will never be crucified, you will never be killed. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block for me. So the Jewish leaders are actually doing what Satan and Peter were doing, right? They're saying to Jesus, come down off the cross, right? Come down off the cross. But Jesus needs to stay on the cross in order to save others. Now, how amazing that must be. Imagine, imagine the worst pain that you have ever suffered. I don't know what pain you might have suffered, right? Maybe you had an operation... Maybe you gave birth. Maybe you had a really bad stomachache. I don't know. Right? But you're in really intense pain. And at the same time as you're suffering your worst pain, people are, are mocking you. Right? Loser, you're a loser, you're a loser. And, and you have the power to shut off that pain and stop that mocking in an instant. Now, I don't know about you, but I would stop the pain, right? Because I don't like pain and I don't like people mocking me. But Jesus stays on that cross and endures the pain as well as the mocking because he is the Son of God, because he is the Christ, and because he is the Savior. Now the passage goes on in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the wombs, their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, uh, from noon to 3 p.m., darkness came over Jerusalem. Okay, darkness came over Jerusalem. So, the darkness in the Bible usually symbolizes God's supernatural judgment at work. Okay? So darkness equals God's judgment. And that makes sense because as Jesus is on the cross, he is being judged by God. 
The wrath of God, like a big magnet, sorry, big magnifying glass is being focused onto Jesus at that point. And that's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is forsaken. He's abandoned, right? Forsaken means he's abandoned by God. He's deserted by God. He's left by God. Because Jesus hanging on the cross is taking the sins of the world. And by taking the sins of the world, God cannot look on Jesus. Instead, God pours out his judgment and wrath on Jesus. So, if you look at the slide, right? So, I put it in pictures, right? So, why? In the next slide, why is Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if you imagine, right? Next slide. Next slide. Yep, all the sins of the world, all the lies, the murder, the hate, the gossip, the slander, the jealousy, and envy, the lust, all the sins of millions of people of the world come upon Jesus, and therefore the wrath of God comes on him. And that's why Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness of judgment comes upon Jesus as he bears the sins of the whole of humanity through history. And that's why when Jesus dies, it says in verse 51, at that very moment, a great supernatural act happens, right? The next slide. Where uh, the curtain is torn from top to bottom in the temple. Now, the curtain in the, the temple is not like our uh, curtain in the back, like the IKEA curtain, right? Okay, it's not like, you know, this very flimsy curtain, right? It's like a thick carpet curtain, okay? So, you know, if you usually want to tear a curtain, uh, you tear it from bottom to top, right? Because, you know, that's because we are at the bottom, right? Okay? But the fact that it was torn from top to bottom shows that, hey, something weird is happening, right? Now this curtain was, is, is generally seen, as we see in the other parts of the New Testament, as the inner curtain of the temple. The inner curtain of the temple separated God's presence, symbolic presence, in the inner holy of holies from the outer part of the temple. So, when the curtain is torn at the death of Jesus, something great and something significant has happened. It means that there is no longer this big, thick curtain separating God from the outside of the rest of the temple. That means the people outside the temple can now have access to God in the Holy of Holies. The reason why is because Jesus has now taken away the sins of people, and because people are sinless, they are able to approach a holy God. Now, as we have come through this passage, we see that this is the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. When he hangs there on the cross, when he dies on the cross, he is taking away the sins of people so that people can come into a relationship with God. Now, in conclusion, I've sometimes met people and uh, they will say to me, I feel uh, worthless. I feel like nobody cares for me. I feel that no one really uh, loves me. I feel like I'm not worth anything. 
feel like my self-esteem is very low. I'm very down that way. If you ever feel that way, if you ever feel worthless, insignificant, uh, not valued, not loved, then I think the remedy uh, is to read Matthew chapter 27. Because Jesus, God's Son, right, and God the Father, was willing to have Jesus betrayed, mocked, strung on the head over and over again, flogged, have nails piercing his hands and his feet, insulted by all, rejected by all. Why? For you, and for me, and for us, so that we will be saved, so that we will, we will have judgment and God's wrath pass over us because it was focused on Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about it, right, how much did God love you? How much does Jesus have to love you in order for Him to undergo that sort of suffering? If, if, if someone did that for you, can you not say that they love you? Can they not say that you're worth something? Can you not say that you are valued and treasured by God and Jesus? It must be, right? Because unless God and Jesus right, are willing to, to do all these things for you, it must be because they are wanting you to be saved, right? Think of how much Jesus suffered for you. Think of what Jesus went through for you. So don't ever feel that you are worthless right? or valueless or insignificant. Because God Himself went through all this in order to save your soul and bring you out of judgment and out of wrath. Now if that's the case, and this is what God has done for us and what Jesus has suffered for us, then all the more, understanding it in our minds and appreciating it in our hearts, we must really treasure it. We must really accept it. Because if not, Jesus went through this for nothing, right? But He didn't do it for nothing. He did it so that He would be your suffering servant, your Passover lamb, and the one who would bring forgiveness of sins by His blood into your life. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we understand more of what Jesus went through that day, that we would marvel, that we would be speechless, that we would be awestruck by the lengths by which your grace, your love, your generosity extends to us. That Jesus hung and stayed on that cross in spite of great pain and suffering, abuse and insults. Not for his sake, but so that he may save others. So that truly he may be the Savior who bears all our sins. Dear Father, if today we sit here and we hear these words and do not appreciate it and do not value it and do not see what you have done for us, we pray that you would help us to have a fresh insight into what was really paid so that we will be free from eternal judgment. 
Dear Father, we pray for us, us as well who may have heard this message for many times and in many places. But dear Father, once again as we hear of the death of Jesus and what he went through, we pray that you may help us uh, to truly appreciate the journey and the steps that Jesus walked in order that we may be forgiven. That what is free for us was truly costly for him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.